the knowledge that, that God is sovereign changes so much about our lives. And really, that's where Solomon is, is now transitioning. He's been focused on the meaningless elements of our life if we're, that is looking for meaning and satisfaction and, and lasting uh, joy in the things under the sun, the, the fleeting nature of life that it's here and then it's gone. He's, he's been focused on that for the first two chapters. But now as we get to chapter three, he, he turns and he begins to focus more on this concept of God's sovereignty over this life that is vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, declares the preacher. And as he does so, he's going to begin to, to, to turn the corner for us that's going to help us to understand, as we've talked about in our goals so often, how we can actually begin to love this book. Because he's going to pivot and he's going to begin to walk through what it looks like to, uh, to live this life in a way that we can actually enjoy it, that we can love this life. Uh, and that does have so much to do with understanding that God is sovereign over everything that takes place in our lives. Our other goals, as we've talked about, is learning from death, which we talked about a lot last week and the week before, and it'll show up a little bit this week, but not, not as the main focus. Again, the main focus this week is going to be on the idea that God is sovereign, and Ecclesiastes also helps us to, to loosen our grip on our idols, the things that we are looking to to satisfy us when God has said, this is not what I have to satisfy you. God wants to be the ultimate thing, not the things that he's given us. And and we run into trouble when we take a good thing, a thing that is a gift from God, and turn it into an ultimate thing, when really there's only one ultimate thing, and that is God himself. And then finally, the book is going to help us be prepared for the Bema Seat. And certainly God's sovereignty has a lot to say about this last one. And we'll talk about that, especially in our third point together this morning, that we need to be ready. We need to live lives this side of eternity that prepare us to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, to receive what is due for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, when I put my kids to bed at night, I, I leave the hall light on by their request. And sometimes they struggle to fall asleep, and, and yet they're okay as long as that hall light is on. But sometimes they'll outlast even my wife and I, and, and they'll be up later and, and just struggling to fall asleep. And we'll go up and we'll turn off the hall light on our way to, to go to sleep ourselves. And that's when the fear takes over. See, they're okay as long as the hall light's on because they know when the hall light's on, that represents the fact that, that mom and dad are still awake, that somebody else in the house is awake, somebody who is bigger than them, who is stronger than them, who is wiser than them, who is there to protect them. They're awake and they're, they're knowing what's going on in the house and so they don't need to worry about any of that. But as soon as that hall light goes off, it's a sign to them that, oh no, now mom and dad are going to sleep and now I'm the only one left awake and that then begins to cause them to to fear. Well, as we think about God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty gives us that same comfort in our lives, or at least it should, as that hall light does for my kids. And the good news is, is God never turns off his hall light. The Bible tells us, right, we serve a God that never sleeps and never slumbers. We serve a God who is sovereign and always on duty, for lack of a better way to put it. That God is always aware of what's going on, that he's always guiding, orchestrating, protecting providing for us. And there's never a time that we're left alone. There's never a time that we're left on our own. And understanding that, which is where we're going in the book of Ecclesiastes, really does change the way that we navigate this life under the sun. It does change the way that we encounter a life in a world that otherwise might, yeah, simply be vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It changes the way that we answer the question that we've been striving to answer from Ecclesiastes 1.3, which is, what does a man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
really the sovereignty of God does change everything. And Solomon picks up and begins to talk about the sovereignty of God there in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read. It says, For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now you may be thinking about this group of people as you're going through that list there. This is the birds. Little known fact, actually, the birds are not the ones that wrote the, the song, turn, turn, turn. I don't know if you know who did. Does anybody know who wrote the song besides King Solomon? A guy named Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger is the first one to write this song, and he wrote the song and actually sold the rights to a, another band, not the birds. The birds were not the first ones to record this song either. First ones to record this song was a band called the Limelighters. And in the Limelighters was a guy named Roger McGuinn, who then went on to become a member of the birds and recorded this song with the birds and became one of the most well-known songs. In fact, if you search on Spotify for the birds, B-Y-R-D-S, not B-I-R-D-S, that's a different band altogether. But if you search for the birds on Spotify, their number one song still today is this song, Turn, 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 For Everything There Is a Season. Unfortunately, the birds totally missed the point of what Solomon was driving at, as did Pete Seeger, I guess. Because what it became is it became this anti-war mantra of fatalistic resignation. That there's just, this is life. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And we need to be more about peace than we need to be about war. But that's, that's not what Solomon was driving at here. And so what Solomon was driving at here is something far better than that, far bigger than that, far greater than that. Because he, he frames this with his thesis statement. Look, there's a, a time for everything and a season for everything. And the birds neglected to realize who it is that sets those times and sets those seasons. And we have that answer. In fact, it says as much in verse 11. If we can jump ahead really quick. Chapter 3, verse 11, it says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that's a weird translation. That word beautiful, it actually is a word in the Hebrew that means he's made everything right. He's made everything fitting, everything appropriate in its time. And so God is the one that sets the times. God is the one that determines the seasons. So as we look through these first eight verses, keep that in mind, that as we're reading this, it's God who is establishing these times that Solomon is going to walk through. This is not just simply the fatalistic outcome of, of human choice or human decisions. No, this is God's sovereignty in action. For everything, there's a season. For every matter under heaven, a time. He starts with a time to be born and a time to die. Some of these couplets are opposites, and here we have an opposite. We've got the, the birth and we've got death. And, and what Solomon's doing here with this parallelism in the Hebrew poetry is he's implying that it's not just our birth and our, our death that God is sovereign over, but he's sovereign over every time in between those two. That he, he runs the gamut from pole to pole. This is like when Jesus says in the book of Revelation that I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's not just simply saying that I'm there at the, the outset and I'll also be there at the end. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm there through it all. I'm everything. And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying there's a, a time to be born and a, and a time to die. Well, who 
appoints those times. The God who has made everything beautiful in its time, verse 11. He goes on, he says, there's a time to plant and a time to harvest. This is the, the rhythms of life that Solomon is talking about in these eight verses. If we go back to chapter one, you remember he talked about the cyclical patterns of creation. He said the sun rises, the sun sets, and then it goes back around to, to do it all over again. And then he talked about the rivers and the streams. He said they, they continually empty into the ocean, and yet the, the ocean is never full and the rivers are never dry. He's talking about that cyclical pattern, the rhythmic nature of creation. And now he's turning to our lives and saying, look, there's a, also a, a rhythmic pattern of our lives as well. And just like God has created the world with that rhythmic pattern, he's created our, our lives with this rhythmic pattern. Certainly Solomon was writing to an agricultural culture and an agricultural audience. Maybe some of you grew up on a farm or know what farm life is like, and, and you know that, yeah, there's a time that you plant certain things that you don't plant others. There's a time that you harvest certain things that you can't harvest others. Why? Because that's the way that the world works. That's the way that, that God has established the seasons in the times that he has done this in his sovereignty. There's also a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to kill could be a reference to war, could be a reference to capital punishment, that there's a time to execute somebody, to, to judge them for their sins, their crimes against humanity, and so they need to be executed. It could also just simply be a nod to the reality that, that Solomon's writing to those that live in a broken and fallen world, and there are murders that take place, and he's acknowledging the reality that even that takes place under the, God, the, the sovereign purview of, of God. And he says the opposite is there's also a time to heal. There's a time when there is peace. There's a time when there's restoration. There's a time when there's refreshment to people. That this is part of God's sovereign rhythm of life. There's also a time to break down and a time to build up. Something that's, this is simply a, a restatement of the killing and the healing. But I think this transcends just the, the physical life and this gets to the concept, there's a time to, to tear down edifices, structures, buildings. There's a time to tear down societies. There's a time to tear down cultures. There's a time to tear down programs, right? And then on the flip side, there's a time also to build those things up, to institute new programs, new societies, new cultures, to build new buildings. And so there's a time for both of these things under God's sovereign plan. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, that lamentation and rejoicing. That theme shows up time and time again, no pun intended, in this rhythmic statements, this rhythmic poem that Solomon gives here in the first eight verses, this concept of mourning, and even in the next verse, right, there's mourning, there's, uh, there's sorrow, and there's dancing, there's exuberation. These are part of the ebbs and flows of life. There's these ups and downs, and God is sovereign over all of them. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Again, think the agricultural society there. If they were going out to plant a field, they needed to go into the field and walk through the field and and get rid of all the rocks and the stones. Why? Because that was not going to go well for them trying to plow the field, right? So they would gather the stones by casting them away from the, the, the field to, to, to plow it in order to plant and then to harvest. But then there's other times that you're going to go gather those same stones that you threw away because you're going to go and you're going to build a wall with those stones. And so you see the, the, the back and forth, the rhythmic pattern, the rhythmic flow of life. There's a time to embrace and then there's COVID, right? A couple of you got that. There's a time to refrain from embracing, right? Well, you didn't have anything to do with 
a virus or masks or, or mandates. This had to do with the idea of, think of a, a long lost relative, or, or not a lost relative, but a, a relative that you haven't seen in a long time that comes home or comes to visit you. You're gonna embrace that person. You're gonna hug them. You're gonna rejoice over seeing them. But then when you wake up and you see the same person that you've lived with for the last 20 years, you're not gonna have the same level of excitement when you see them in the morning, right? You're gonna refrain from embracing because this is just simply everyday life. There's an ebb and flow even in our relationships. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. That word seek has the idea of setting goals. There's a time to be diligent about aiming towards accomplishing a task or a goal, to seek after this accomplishment. But then the flip side is this idea of losing. There's a time to be resigned to the reality that maybe you're not going to accomplish something that you did set yourself out to, to accomplish and you need to, to let that go. Again, the ebb and flow, and that's part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. There's a time to keep and a time to, to cast away. There's a time to save and there's a time to let things go. Some of you are hoarders or maybe you're married to a hoarder and, and this is a good verse to, to text them maybe today. Hey, look, there's a time to hold on to things and there's also a time that God's okay with us letting things go, right? And that's all part of God's sovereign plan. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. These next two couplets, this one and the next one, again, uh, uh, refer to mourning, once more. There's a time that we rend our garments, that we tear our clothes, the, the symbol in ancient Israel of mourning. And then there's a time that we're making new clothes, that we're sewing, that there's a new season of life that we're stepping into. There's a time to keep silent. Again, a symbol of mourning, to be silent. And then there's also that time where we come out of mourning and we return to everyday life. There's that time that we go back to just speaking, that we're, we're carrying on in conversation with one another. There's a time to love and a time to hate. It was interesting watching the commentators try to do circles and cartwheels to explain how God could want us to hate. Well, I think it's pretty simple. God wants us to love what he loves and hate what he hates, right? And God hates the things that are sinful. God hates the things that are against his will. God loves the things that are in, in keeping with his will, right? So there's a time for us to love things. There's a time for us to hate things. And that also is part of God's sovereign plan. It's okay for us to say that, yes, God wants us to hate something. God wants us to hate abortion. God wants us to hate the perversion of marriage. God wants us to hate these things. These are, are wrong. They're sinful things that are against his plan and against his will. And then, of course, there's a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon's eight verses going through the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of life. And again, the, the thesis statement is there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. And, and for some, that, that bothers them. It's frustrating to think that God is sovereign to that degree over everything in my life, from birth to death and everything in between, that God is sovereign over all of it, and that he's, he's appointed times for all of it. And, and it's, it can be frustrating to them, but to me, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's a great comfort to me to know that God is sovereign. To think about trying to navigate the world in which we live without the reality of a sovereign God is a terrifying concept. And so for us, as we think about the ups and downs of life, the mountaintops and the valleys of life, it should comfort us that God is involved in every single element of those ups and downs. Again, the hall light's always on with God. He's never off duty, and that should comfort us immensely. Point number one this morning is this. Find comfort in finding God in the ebbs and flows of life. Find comfort in finding God in the ebbs and flows of life. All of these things, a time for Love and hate and war and peace and birth and death and mourning and dancing and keeping and all of these things. The fact that God is sovereign over the details of your life should be a great encouragement to you. In fact, 
this is, I think, another way of, of Solomon laying out for us what his dad, what David said in Psalm 139. When God in Psalm 139 talks about, you know, David saying, look, Lord, you hem me in before and behind me. You know a word before it's even on my mouth. You know the number of hairs on my head. In fact, his greatest statement of God's intimacy of, of knowledge over our lives, which echoes there's a time to be born and a time to die, is when he says, Lord, all of the days of my life were recorded in your book when as yet not one of them had come to pass. He knows our beginning and our end, right? And so Solomon is saying, what my dad said in Psalm 139, let me, let me just put that to a different way of, of going about this and say the same thing, though. And that is that God is sovereign. And that has to comfort us, right? I mean, think about Daniel without God's sovereignty. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. That whole book is about God's sovereignty. Think about Joseph without God's sovereignty. Think about Joseph wrestling with being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and, and then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then in, imprisoned and abandoned in prison and then left in prison and forgotten in prison by these two guys that said they were going to remember him. And imagine if Joseph did not have a concept of a sovereign God, and we know he did, right? Because he makes that great statement, which without a sovereign God, we don't have when Joseph says, what you meant for evil, what? God meant for good. Or think about Job without God's sovereignty. And talk about a, just a head scratcher. The only thing that, that kept Job from listening to his wife at the outset when she said, curse God and die, is his knowledge that God is sovereign. And how do we know that Job knew that God is sovereign? Well, what does he say? He says what? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Still I will say what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. If God is not sovereign, Job never says that. If God is not sovereign, Job listens to his wife and ends his life. Because that's the only logical step for him to take unless he knows that God is sovereign. See, when we understand that God is sovereign, it transforms everything about the way that we encounter suffering in our lives. It transforms everything about the way that we encounter a world that Solomon was so frustrated with in chapter 2 and chapter 1 because it, it kept letting him down. It kept disappointing him. It kept not fulfilling him. And now he's saying, but okay, but wait a minute. All of this is from God. And it's from God in order to, to remind us that that he's the one that's orchestrated and ordained all of this, that there's something bigger than this world. There's something that transcends this world. And it's him. And for us, men, that should comfort us. Imagine God not being sovereign over your pain. Imagine him not being sovereign over your sorrow. Imagine if God wasn't sovereign over your marriage. Imagine if God wasn't sovereign over your parenting. Imagine if God wasn't sovereign over your, your work. Imagine if God wasn't sovereign over your finances. Imagine if God was not sovereign and then imagine trying to wake up tomorrow morning in the uncertainty and the instability and the, the, the just discouraging headline after headline after headline. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Men, from, from the, the view of the ground, we are fighting a losing battle in this world. But from God's perspective, we know that the story is different. And his sovereignty reminds us of that. His sovereignty teaches us that. His sovereignty 
makes that a sure reality for us. And that's what Solomon's talking about in these first eight verses. God's sovereign over it all. In verse 90, he returns to a, a familiar refrain. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? If God is sovereign over everything, what is... What, what gain is there, right? This is the same question that he's been asking. But he goes on, he says, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, that's familiar also. It goes back to chapter one, verse 13. Same concept, same statement. Verse 11, he's gonna add some color to this now for us. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, appropriate in its time. It's fitting for its time. God has sovereignly ordained it and it's just right. And he says, also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's an interesting statement there that Solomon made, one, one that's familiar to us. That Solomon's saying, look, God has, has reminded hum, humanity that there's, there's something more than, than this life. And even the most avowed atheist, even, even Stephen Hawking, as we talked about a, a few weeks ago, when he said, look, the brain is simply a computer and it's gone. I think even for Hawking, in his most honest moments with himself, probably hated that reality. You can get into conversations with an atheist, and that atheist is happy to talk to you about how it's foolish to believe in a creator God. It's foolish to believe in, in the act of creation because science, 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 science. It's, it's foolish to believe that a good God could exist with an evil world. It's, how could you believe that? And that's, they'll talk about that all day long. But if you really want to talk about their future, that's when they're going to start to squirm and want to get off that subject as fast as they can. You're really okay with the fact that you're going to die and become worm food and all of your life is a pointless vapor that means nothing to you or to anyone else. You're worm food. You have zero significance. You're an infinitesimal speck of lint in the cosmos. You mean nothing, and you're fine with that. Go there with an atheist and watch how quickly they begin to want to get back to talking about evolution. Because they're uncomfortable with that. Because why? Because God has placed eternity in the heart of every man to say this can't be all there is, and yet... What does Solomon say? And yet he's frustrated their endeavors to find out what there is. He says they can't figure it out. He's put eternity into the heart of men, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. And so Solomon says, I, I perceived from all of this that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. And I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away or what has been pursued or chased. Man, Solomon's driving now from this concept that God is sovereign to say, okay, then if he's sovereign and he's put eternity in the hearts of men, what has he done all this for? It's interesting. He, he opens it with that, that question, what gain has a man from all the toil with which he works? And the answer is, we've already seen in chapter 1 and 2, really nothing, because nothing lasts. But then he contrasts that. Look in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. And whatever God does is that he has done this. He is, he's created this world to let us down. He's created this world to dis disappoint us. He's created this world to, 
to disenfranchise us with life if we're living for all that's under the world. And so Solomon says two things. We should look at this and say, okay, then what I need to do is just simply enjoy the world for what it is. Enjoy my toil day in, day out. We talked about that a little bit last week. But then there's a second conclusion that we should make. We should realize that God has done all of this for a purpose. Look at verse 14 again. Why has God done all of this? Why has God designed this world this way, created this world this way, and and put us in this world? He's done it to lead us to one conclusion, and that is that we should do what with God? Fear him. God's sovereignty, men, should cause us to understand that we must fear him. Yes, to be joyful and to do good and to take every day as it comes, but then more significantly and more importantly than that, because this is the key to us being able to enjoy it, we must understand that God has created everything and done everything that he's done in order that we would acknowledge him, and in acknowledging him, we would fear him. That's our task as well, men. And God has revealed himself to you and given you the understanding that he is sovereign. And what I want us to think about this morning and do this morning is to realize that that is a gift from him and we can't waste that gift. That's point number two. Don't waste your knowledge of God's sovereignty. Don't waste your knowledge of God's sovereignty. There's two ways that we can do this. There's two dangers that we have to avoid here if we're to not waste our knowledge of his sovereignty. And the first is that we can fail to fear him because he is sovereign. And sometimes we think of the fear of the Lord and, and we, we resign that to the Old Testament. And we say, well, yeah, we should fear God, but, but really, come on, this is, we're in the Jesus days now. Lest we forget, what did Jesus say? Don't fear man who can simply kill the body, but what? Fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But the fear of the Lord is a, is a New Testament concept. And, and in fact, it's, it's all over the New Testament. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially. Notice the, the sovereignty element here that Peter sets up this verse with. If you call on him as father who judges with sovereign judgment, impartially, according to each one's deeds, what's the conclusion then? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear of, of what? Fear of man? No, we know we shouldn't fear man. Fear of, of death? No we, shouldn't, no, we shouldn't fear death. Fear of hell? No, well, if we're in Christ, we shouldn't fear hell. Fear of what? Fear of, fear of God. Right? That reverent obedience to the Lord. How about Philippians 2.12? Coming off the, the great kenosis passage where Jesus was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is sovereign to the glory of the Father. Then he continues, therefore, because of that, what? As you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, the fear of what? The fear of God. The, 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 the knowledge of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ should produce in us a fear of God that leads us to an obedient life. We need to make sure that we're not missing that, that we're not wasting our knowledge of God's sovereignty. Ephesians 6, 5, Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. 
So Paul's saying, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Well, how should I obey Christ? With fear and trembling and sincerity. Fearing the Lord, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that sovereign Lord, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Persuade them to do what? To fear the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others likewise. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. See, men, when we recognize God's sovereignty over our lives, it should lead us to this awe and this reverence and, yes, this, this fear of God. That should have a sanctifying impact on our lives. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 26 says, we need to fear lest we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And if we, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Man, that's a terrifying statement. That should cause us to fear God and, and to say, man, I, I don't want that to be me. God is the sovereign judge who has the power to, to cast me into hell, right? And I, man, I, I fear that. And so I want to live a life of faithful obedience to him. I want to make sure that my life is marked by the fear of the Lord because God is sovereign over my life. I'm not the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of my life. And as such, I should fear him. So that's the first way we can waste it by failing to fear the Lord. The second way is by failing to find joy in the day in and day out of the life that he has given to us. He wants us to have that joy and we can have that joy. Does that mean that I walk around with a slap happy stupid grin on my face all day long thinking, well, everything's great and hunky dory? No, right? In fact, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we should be characterized as believers who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What a juxtaposition that just sums up life, doesn't it? We are going to be sorrowful in times. In fact, Solomon's already said that. There's a time for mourning. There's a time for rending the garments. There's a time for, for weeping. And yet, there's this abiding ability to, to answer the call that Paul gives in Philippians when he says, rejoice again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Well, how can we have this joy in the day in and day out of life even when we're in the valley. A couple things. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know this passage, right? Talk about the sovereignty of God. If you ring out Romans 8, it just drips with the sovereignty of God. Or it drips with Calvin for some of us. But Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now that's the key phrase in that verse. For those who are called according to his purpose. Our good is his purpose. What's his purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, or you could say purposed, if you will, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what's his purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So what's my good? That I would be conformed to the image of Christ. So how can I have joy? Knowing that God is working all things together towards that end, that I would be conformed to the image of Christ. And there is no greater good for me, because the one that defined good has told me in the pages of Scripture that this is my good, that I would be like Jesus. And man, in this world, it can be a painful process 
for God as the master sculptor to, to take chisel and hammer and to go after carving us into the image of his son. Sometimes that is a violent process. But it's always for our good. And we can have that joy. Which allows us to have this mindset that Paul has in 2 Corinthians 4. When he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self, yes, it's wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Go read 2 Corinthians 11 when you get a moment. Because seven chapters later, Paul's going to say, oh, hey, by the way, that light momentary affliction that I wrote about in chapter 4, let me let you know what that was. And he's going to give us his resume of suffering. And it's unreal when you read that then to come back and read 2 Corinthians 4 and say, Paul, how in the world is this light momentary affliction? You were stoned and left for dead. You were shipwrecked and spent a night and a day adrift at sea. You were in danger from robbers. You were beaten with rods. You were whipped with the, the 39 lashes. Paul, how can you say this is light momentary affliction? Because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, notice this word, are what? Transient, can I suggest? Vanity, fleeting. It's the same concept. The things that are seen are here and then they're gone. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we can have this abiding joy as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. One more. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me before, but you had no opportunity. But not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul, what's the secret? That God is sovereign. And so that reality allows us to face hunger and plenty with the same mindset. God, you're sovereign. You've brought both into my life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why, Paul, why can you say that? Because there's an eternal weight of glory that awaits for us. That's beyond all comparison. And so knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that the hall light's still on with God, we can walk through the valleys of this life even though it looks pitch black to us. He's got the light on. He's in control. He's sovereign over us. He's guiding us, leading us, orchestrating and providing for us throughout all of it. And we know where we're going and that is to be with him. And that's to be in, in the presence of an eternal weight of glory that's gonna make everything that we encounter here seem like light momentary affliction. So we groan under that light momentary affliction now, but not without hope in the eternal weight of glory that we'll have then. And God's sovereignty allows us to have that mindset. Now, don't waste your knowledge of God's sovereignty. He picks up and continues in verse 16. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man happens also to the beasts. It's, it's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. 
All go to one place. All are from the dust. All to dust return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We need to do some untangling here because this doesn't seem to make sense at first. Why is all of a sudden Solomon wrestling with this idea of the difference between man and beast? Of course there's a difference between man and beast. The movie All Dogs Go to Heaven is a cute sentiment, but it's not true. What distinguishes you from an animal is the fact that you have a soul. And what transcends the, the, the here and now is the immaterial that you have, which is your soul, right? And so if there's going to be animals in the new heavens and new earth, it's because God created them there. It's not because your childhood pet is going to be there. If you disagree with me, fine. Whatever. When I'm there and you bring me all of your dead goldfish, you can prove me wrong. And show me, look at their glorified bodies. They're amazing. I'm going to say, yes, but they're still goldfish. Just go flush them down the heavenly toilet somewhere. There is a difference between us. So what do you mean, Solomon? What are you driving at here? This seems like you're, you're regressing. We were charging ahead. This was all fine and dandy. And now you're saying, wait a minute, what's the difference? Well, it's because we need to understand his argument. In verse 16, he says, look, I, I looked around the world and I looked for justice and I found wickedness. And I looked around the world and I, I looked for righteousness and I, I found wickedness. And in Solomon's mind, he knows verse 17. The sovereignty of God says that's okay because everything is going to come before the Lord for judgment someday. He's appointed that time. But see, if we miss verse 17 and we just go to verse 18, he's saying those that reject the sovereignty of God, here's what God has done. He's testing them by them looking around this world and, and seeing the futility and having to conclude this idea that, that man and beast are alike. Because those that have rejected the sovereignty of God, as he talks about in verse 18, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, God is testing them that they may see that they are simply beasts. Because if you've rejected God, you have to conclude, man, we're no different than the animals. If I'm gonna look for righteousness, I'm gonna find wickedness. If I'm gonna look for justice, I'm gonna find wickedness. What difference is there between me and the apes? If God doesn't exist, Darwin's right. There's no sense of justice in the animal kingdom. Monkeys aren't holding court. What's the, the cry of the animal kingdom? It is Darwinianism. Survival of the fittest. There's no inherent righteousness. And some people say, well, my, my dog knows right from wrong. No, your dog knows that if he, he pees on the carpet, you're going to swat him in the head with a newspaper. That's instinct, not guilt. The animal kingdom has no concept of these things. But Solomon's saying, look, if, if you reject God, if God's not in the equation, if there is no sovereign God, then there is no difference. Man, this drove Darwin nuts at the end of his life. He wrestled with this same concept. Solomon just wrestled with it way before he did. Darwin, towards the end of his life, wrestled with the reality, man, if, if, if I'm just an evolved ape, then why is my thought process any better than a, a monkey's? And it crushed him towards the end. But if, if we reject God, there's no hope. And here's what I want to suggest, man. Do you, do you realize what a gift it is that God has given us to, to know him? 
What a gift it is that God has given us to know that he is sovereign. To have that understanding, that does not come naturally. That is a supernatural imparting of that knowledge to us by a God who is a God of grace and mercy. To make himself known in that way to us. Because otherwise, as you read verses 18 through 22, it's, man, it's not a pretty picture here. Our final point this morning is this. Give thanks to God for sovereignly revealing himself to you. Give thanks to him that you have this knowledge that you aren't sitting there going, man, what is the difference between me and an animal? That you're not sitting there going, man, when I die and Fido dies, does my soul go somewhere different than his? Who knows? I don't know. Of course you know. Why? Because God has revealed himself to you. And this is not a diatribe against your animals and your pets. I'm not. Enjoy them, fine, whatever. I'm simply trying to get you to understand it and to appreciate the knowledge that God has provided for you. The knowledge that allows you to look at this world and see all the messed up aspects of this world. And there are a million of them that you can find just by opening up the news browsers this morning. What allows us to keep going in this world? What allows you to wake up tomorrow morning and take another step? What, what enables you to do that? It's the knowledge that God is ordained in over all of it. Even the evil stuff? Yeah, even the evil stuff. How can that be? Because he's got a day that's coming, verse 17, right? I said in my heart, God will judge. Notice it's future. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and every work. Y'all, this is him getting to the end of the book before he gets to the end of the book. This is him giving us a spoiler alert ahead of time because at the end, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Why? Because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And then we come back to verse 17. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and every work. We know this, right? What does Romans 2, 5 say about the wicked and the evil in this world? That God is storing up, or they are rather storing up what? Wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Nobody's getting away with anything. God's sovereign over it all, and he's sovereign over the execution of his judgment and over the execution of his vengeance. What does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so that's, men, how we can navigate this world and not be hopeless and not look around and say, well, how, why are we any better off than the animal kingdom? Well, because we have a sovereign God, and we ourselves have a soul that he has placed within us and created within us. And that soul transcends the here and now, and so what do I do in the meantime? Will I live my life? I, I even as he says there in, in chapter three, verse 22, I enjoy, I rejoice in my work for that's my lot because God has allowed me to do this and given me this to do. Verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. That's what we're to do, man. Knowing that we do that, do that under the purview of a sovereign God. Again, whose light is never off. He's always there, always on duty. He has always got us. He is our sovereign Lord. And that should be such a great comfort to us. He's sovereign over the, the fleeting nature of this world. God is sovereign over the vanity of this world. In fact, he's designed it that way. 
so that our restless souls might ultimately find rest in him. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for that, that truth and that reality, and, and we are thankful that you have made yourself known to us, God. Lord, we want to be humble in that because it's not because of our, our worth or our merit or our value over and above anyone else, but it's simply because of your, your love, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your sovereignty that you sovereignly revealed yourself to us. Lord, help us not to waste that knowledge of you, but to live lives that are lived in, in the fear of you. Lives that are, are, are lived joyful every day because we know that this world is not all there is. That even when we experience what from your perspective is light momentary affliction, Lord, we know that that's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What a, a joyful thought that is. That we know that everything that happens to us, that you are, are working together for our good, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. What an amazing truth that is, God. Help us to hold fast to things like that so that we can have the right perspective, so that we can enjoy the day in and day out of this life as we seek to glorify you, Lord, because that's really ultimately what this is all about. It's not about us. It's not about our plans and our, our hopes and our dreams and our bank accounts and our retirement and our families. It's not about our job. It's not, it's not about us. It's about you. And yet, Lord, as you are a God who is a, a God of goodness and a God of love, you've allowed us to experience things like joy in this life. And you've designed an eternal dwelling for us with you, which will be uh, the most amazing experience that we will ever have had, and we will have it for all of eternity without end. God, thank you for that. Help us today to navigate this life in a way that pleases you and brings you glory in Christ's name. Amen.